Hey, hey, everybody. I'm Lee McCormick. Welcome to Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast, episode 120, Wrecking Ball Album Review, part two. Thanks for listening or downloading the show from the website TrampsLikeUsPod.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you found it. Stay in touch and updated at our Facebook group page, Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast. I hope you checked out part one of our Wrecking Ball album review. On this episode, part two, myself, Eric Miller, and Jeff Harris give our thoughts on the remaining tracks on the record, and then we each pick our favorite and least favorite songs. The boss is back like a wrecking ball. That, at least, is the title of Bruce Springsteen's new album, which will be released March 6th. The 17th official studio recording from New Jersey's most famous musician and the E Street Band will be produced by Ron Aniello, who has worked with everyone from Canadian rockers Bare Naked Ladies to Springsteen's wife. The first single from the 13-song album, We Take Care of Our Own, has been released and features just what fans might expect, chugging guitar-led rock and roll primed for the stadium. The record's release comes after a tough year for the songwriter, whose longtime bandmate saxophonist Clarence Clemens passed away last summer. The boss and his remaining bandmates are playing concerts in Europe through July, but a source with the Chicago Cubs told Chicago Sun-Times that the American legend is tentatively scheduled to play Wrigley Field in September. Super fans and ticket scalpers, start your engines. All right, so where were we? Let's continue with the eighth song on the record, You've Got It. No one ever found it Ain't no school ever taught it No one ever made it Ain't no one ever bought it Baby, you've got it Baby, you've got it Come on Give it to me. Another song on this record I really like is like because it's kind of the last of the tracks. It's like that have that kind of kind of gospely flavor and theme to it. It's like and it's again it's like it's after you know most of the record is like you know talks about you know being you know kind of down and out. It's like but this is kind of something more like you know kind of talking about matters of the heart. You know, and it's just. Like how he says, it's like, you know, that uh, ain't no school ever taught it, ain't no one ever bought it, but baby, you got it. You know, it's like, that's what a great hook that is. Yeah. A rare optimistic love song on a Springsteen record, right? Very, uh, very rare, very rare to get one of those, right? And he's talking about this woman that has that undescribable something, you know, that je ne sais quoi. She has the magic, the power, you know, the love potion, the, exactly, the irresistible you know. triangle, if you will. <laughs> Right. This is this song's not bad. You know, I don't like the arrangement. I don't like the production. Like I said, the core songwriting is good. Uh-huh. I think this could be like almost like a rock song. Like you could you could speed it up, throw like a backbeat on it, uh, maybe double time. It could be cool, right? But I don't. It's kind of got that sort of adult contemporary. Like I'm waiting for yeah, get my teeth. I'm waiting to get my tooth kind of filled at the dentist kind of song, and this is playing kind of thing. You know. Yeah, but I think definitely the thing that draws me most to is is just is the lyric. Well, the yeah. lyrics are always good, right? That yeah, lap steel, that lap steel is a little too Bonnie Raitt for me, you know? It's got to know. <laughs> Eric, what do you think about this one? You've got it. What did you just say? You called it an irresistible triangle? Are you talking about, like, uh, what are you talking about? You what know what I'm talking about. 
You're talking about like on Warren's cherry pie where the pie is falling in front of the waitress. It's just in that right spot. Is that what you're referring to? Something like that. Yeah. Triangle? Yeah, yeah. Hang on. Landing right in Bobby Brown's lap. I got you. This is probably this is probably my least favorite on the record. If I'm being honest, you know, it's 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 got that lone voice and guitar in the beginning. Um, he does that. He's putting on that twang thing, which you know isn't isn't my favorite. It usually works, but I'm always aware of it when he's doing it. If that makes sense, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't dissolve it in song. Like I'm, I don't know. That, that's not my favorite thing. Um, it's got a good slide solo, right? Which I think is cool. You know, great rock and roll sort of piano, hand claps. That's uh, Greg Lies. Greg Lies or Lees okay. on the lap steel guitar. I mean, it's 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 seductive. It's like inspirational, self-affirming rock and roll. You know, um, it, it doesn't necessarily fit on the record for me. It's like that. What's the song on the rising? That's like the second. Let's song. be friends, skin to skin. That's it. Yeah, that like that one doesn't fit on that record for me, and this one is kind of that on yeah, this record. I agree with that totally. Yeah. All right, moving on to the second single off the record, "Rocky Ground." I'm a Shepherd rise up Here for lock is wrong Far from the hill Stars have faded sky still Angels are shouting Glory and So this one definitely big gospel feel to this song, right? We got Michelle Moore singing on this. We got the victorious gospel choir on vocals, right? And this song was definitely written for that potential film project that he was working on earlier that got shelved, right? He was very immersed in American religion traditions, right? So this song includes a sample of another one of those Alan Lomax field recordings. This is a sample of a song uh, or a poem called I'm a Soldier in the Army of the Lord. Right, there's that refrain. I'm a soldier. Almost sounds like Springsteen a little bit, right? <laughs> but that's the same. I wonder, did he get that? As he probably got access to those or awareness of those as a result of that project you mentioned, right? Uh, I assume so. But these are like, like the Lomax field recordings are historical items, yeah. right? Like I'm sure Springsteen has all of these recordings at home, and he's very. Uh, yeah. familiar with all this stuff because of the you know because of the age of those record- I think a lot of those things are in the public domain too as well mm-hmm. when I when I was at the Camp Copperhead there the uh, songwriting masterclass with Steve Earle he really mentioned that everybody needs to own these uh, this, this box set of like American folk field recordings because it's kind of the basis of what popular songwriting was based on were these songs you know dylan and all these guys got their songwriting techniques from these original songs you can you can definitely draw like a a direct line to you know what those guys have done it's like to those you know to that music yeah it's like that there's that there's a a strong influence there you know you know it's like in their like in their writing 
from those, you know, from that stuff. So the character in the song, he's asking God for help. He's asking a higher power for help. Is that this thing? Uh, there's biblical references talking about rocky ground. I think refers to the, the parable of the sower. There's references to the deluge, where uh, they had like 40 days of rain. And there's mm. promised land references. Right? I'm not. I'm not so up to date with my <laughs> with my Bible readings, but uh, those are some references. Right? We got that drum loop, uh, light hip hop beat on this, very soft kind of thing. Uh, sincere singing by Bruce on this and he writes this rap at the end of the song kind of thing right and he originally wrote it for himself to sing but then he thought uh, I don't think I can pull this off which is a good move because I'm not really ready to hear Springsteen's rap no it made for an interesting hybrid it's like you know to, yeah, exactly to hear a rap inside of a Springsteen song yeah, and he actually considered getting Al Green to do the rap and Mavis Staples to actually do the rap, which I would have loved. I would have loved that guest spot because you know, those are two of my two of my musical heroes. But anyway, uh, I think Michelle Moore does the actual rap on the record. I didn't look up Michelle Moore. What's her history? What's her? Do you know anything about her, Jeff? Michelle Moore? Honestly, it's like I have to say, it's like I'm really kind of. I definitely don't really know that much about her. Okay. Yeah, this, I mean, Rocky Ground starts up with that preacher vocal sample you guys talked about, which is just just perfect, right? And then into this vocal, this feminine gospel vocal by Michelle Moore, right? And the, the thing that I really love about her vocal in this song, even the rap is, uh, like, it's not in your face, like, it's not belty, right? It's like, it's humble and steady, and there's like a tenderness to it. Like it's very inviting. It's very warm, you know. Yeah, it's just um, like it does. It doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem obtrusive at all. Yeah, like you could, you know, if you're gonna have like a, I'm assuming she's a belter, right? And if you're gonna have gospel flavors, it's it's probably hard to resist the temptation to have a have that person just belt their ass off on a song like this, right? But yeah. you know, it's it's reserved, and I think it pays dividends i think it's absolutely perfect right you know this like you said lee this one's chock full of you know um religious iconography right western religion imagery you know and all the same notes you said like i love the the drum lute mixed with the live drums i think there's a perfect um they complement each other so well uh i i would have loved to hear mavis do that rap too that's really yeah, cool that's cool eh? um that i i i love the rap section and it's, you know, it's not only her performance and, you know, the, the words, but, you know, there's like this really great bed of like him underneath doing these wailing thing and that, that you know, if it's, it's the same choir you mentioned of the engineers and whatnot, but I think there's an additional choir on this one, like underneath that, there's like this really great like bed of sound that, you know, that she's free to do that rap above it. And it just sits so nicely. It's a beautiful mix. Yeah. That's um, the, uh, that's the victorious gospel choir. And that's where Michelle Moore came from she was just a singer in that choir she's been around red bank new jersey for since singing since she was a four and i guess she's just the star of this choir so she got her break singing with springsteen yeah good for her yeah and a lot of times like you know i'm sure bruce had trepidation over that like a lot of times you know uh like a rap can be seen as a gimmick or wedged in or whatever but not here you know um it definitely works yeah, I'm sure he thought about that. Like, is this a gimmick? Is this does this fit? You know, I'm sure he thought about that at length, right? He's meticulous on those things, sometimes over years, right? Yeah. Um, and then at the end, like it, you know, it builds and builds that rap and the feel 
And then it just comes out again with Michelle's voice and like a fading organ. It's just so wonderful. This is a really good one. Yeah. Uh, the next song is Land of Hope and Dreams. that I like because I can tell you know again where Bruce is coming from this you know on this one it's like that uh, you know that uh, you can tell that he was uh, inspired by uh, kind of by Curtis Mayfield's uh, People Get Ready because you know the way that he uses kind of the train and the song is kind of as a metaphor for kind of like deliverance from uh, you know from you know from despair and from you know from adversity and that that's uh you know definitely a thing that's like that those two songs have kind of in parallel with each other yeah i agree with what jeff said it's um you know obviously at the end they break into people get ready right which is cool um i like the word jeff used deliverance that's a, that's that's cool um you know it, there's something about that intro vocal that sounds like sam moore and then it's sort of into this acoustic strummy on the first verse right um I think, if I'm not mistaken, the history of this song, and Lee, I'm sure you'll fill us in, you know, it goes back a few years, and, you know, um, this might be one of those songs that Bruce took time to craft to get it right and so forth, right? But, you know, I think it perfectly landed here on the in the context of this record, particularly at the end, right? Because it's, you know, all the, all the direct messages we talked about earlier on the record, like, this is now giving us like hope for a new day right a, a new better destination deliverance to use jeff's word right 
leaving the baggage behind, you know, and there are lines in there specifically about Juan, right? And all that, whatever that baggage is, right? Um, and there are, there are lines, you know, that, that just kill me, right? I don't know if it's the pandemic or my age or, you know, whatever, but I'm just like hyper sentimental these days. And, you know, this is one of those songs, you know, when he's singing those, we're all one kind of lyrics, like this train carries saints and sinners those lines carries losers and winners whores and gamblers right those just they just choke me up every time yeah and the one show, it's like you know that again that not uh you know it doesn't matter it's like you know what kind of uh part of life you come from it's like you know that there's you know that there's there's hope for you too yeah we're all basically on the same trajectory right we're all on the same journey when you when you get down yeah. to it right yeah we're all one and the, and to tie it back to the last one that he says, or one of the last ones um, that really gets me, and it goes back to the earlier songs, you know, where faith will be rewarded, right? That's like when you way. talk about jack of all trades, when, you know, the guy's just doing what he can do to get food on the table. But like you said, Lee, there's still hope, baby. We're, you know, I'll take care of you. We're for better tomorrow. So here he's saying, he's repeating again, like, you know, we're all in this together. We're on this train you know, we'll reach the next stop, whatever that destination is, where faith, our faith will be rewarded. It's just so good, right? And then, like, where can it go from here? Then you hear Bells of Freedom ringing, followed by Clarence, which is, hmm, yeah. right? From, you know, posthumously at this point. And then, you know, it releases into People Get Ready. I, this is just absolutely glorious. I, I love this song so much. Written in 1998 for the E Street Band reunion, right? He yeah. wanted to celebrate uh, that reunion, that moment in time, and and have a song to take the band, you know, into the next century. We want to have a new song. We're not just doing greatest hits. We want to have something to build this band into the future, right? And this was like the closing song of those shows. I love that line, like, take what we can carry and leave the rest, right, yeah. on this trip, right? Like, leave your baggage, leave your burdens behind. Just focus on the good stuff, and that'll lead you forward kind of thing, right? Song about the journey of life. And the train is that metaphor that's taking you through the good times, the bad times, the injustice, the inequality, right? Redemption onwards to a better place, right? Of hope and dreams, pretty much, right? Whether that be the heaven or the afterlife or whatever, your utopian society, right? I have an obscure Sopranos reference that you might get. I don't know if Jeff watches Sopranos, but when Tony's in, he's in a session with Melfi and he says, uh, like it was after he went to Vegas and did peyote, right? With, uh, I think it was Sophia or something. Um, and he comes back and he's trying to explain it to Melfi and he had this vision that he got it. And he was trying to explain it back to, and he's limited in his vocabulary or whatever, right? And he was like, you know, it's like life is like a bus and our mothers are the bus drivers. And then we get off and we're constantly trying to get back on that bus, right? Um, and I think this is the thing that he's, he's talking about this message in the land of hope and dreams, if you get that reference. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Another gospel feel to this one where he's got the organ choirs there again. Michelle Moore stepping out, doing some lead vocals. Now, this is, I think, one of those cases where he still can't better the original version. I think the original version of the E Street Band performed and recorded there in New York City uh, 2000 is just the ultimate version of this song. And it's hard to better that, you know, 12 years later. Uh, I don't like the syncopated drum groove that he does. Matt Chamberlain on drums and... He doesn't, when they go into the verse or one of the main riff, he goes into this like, doo, 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 like a syncopated part instead of a two and four. 
don't know. I don't like that. But you know, when that mandolin lick comes in with a uh, little Steven on the mandolin with a do 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 do, so great, right? All that. I love that. And I think this is just definitely one of his best songs. Fantastic writing. You know, I might put this in you know top five Springsteen songs of all time. This is a great one. You know, since you brought up little Steven, I asked a question about what what pull Clarence had that's not on this record since he's not here. Let me ask the same question about little Steven. Like, what what does this record feel like to you guys without little Steven's contribution? Like, what does he? How does he temper Bruce? How does he? Well, it's, it's, it's definitely missing, right? Like, <laughs> like I said, Clarence is missing on this record. Max Weinberg, Roy Bitten, like the, the whole, all the guys are missing, right? And it's that sum of those seven core E Street members that I think mm-hmm. makes Springsteen music, you know, reach the highest possible level. It's incredible stuff when you get those guys on band and performing that. Yeah. Now, now I understand how Springsteen wants to go different ways with his records, and this is his chance to make solo records and take his songs right. in different ways. And I'm sure he knows we're going to play this with the E Street Band and I'll go to that other level, but let's just put this one down on the record. But I think those elements are missing. The sax solo is so special on this song and this record because it doesn't appear anywhere else. It's Clarence's last uh, solo. And like I mentioned earlier, a little story, but from that, it's, it's, a, it's a live version because Clarence died before he could get into the studio and record a new solo. So Ron and Yellow was able to take a solo that Clarence had recorded live and they had to like uh, tra- uh, speed it up or slow it down, get the pitch right, had to do a lot of work to do that. And he actually surprised Springsteen with this. Right? He did this kind of behind his back. And they were Springsteen was really disappointed. Clarence had died. We're not going to get him on this song. And, and Ron did this. And he played the song back to Springsteen without sure. telling him. And he said Springsteen was got totally emotional when that solo came on. And it totally like rocked his world. He loved it, right? So that's a cool little thing, I think. Could yeah. you imagine that moment? You know, Bruce hearing that for the first like, time. Well, yeah. And that- you know, as, as, you know, as criticized as like, you know, modern recording techniques are, it's like, you know, that, uh, you know, they can be used as like, you know, to do something like that, you know, which is, you know, kind of counter, you know, counterintuitive to what, you know, what you can do is like in things like Pro Tools, you know, it's like, so it's like, it's kind of, that's kind of magical. He was able to pull that off. Yeah. What a, like, I want to say ballsy, but. Man, if that did not sound good, like that could have just been a cheesy gimmick or something, right? Yeah. Like if you're, you know, if you're, you get this opportunity to work with Bruce, his best friend just died, his musical brother, you know, the rain just left his world, right? And, you know, you're going to like have the balls, the nerve to like take a solo and try to squeeze it into the song you're working on with Bruce. Like you better, you better bring it proper, right? Like if... (laughs) If that's off, like you're, that's your last day on the job, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, could because that could, really could have gone either way for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm sure it was such a touching moment, you know, for when when he heard that. Wow. It, it sounds great on the, on the track, you know. It's really cool. That's such a great story too. Yeah. I love that history that's behind that. That's thank you for hearing that. All right, and officially, the last song on the record is "We Are Alive." Yeah. 
There's a cross up yonder on Calvary Hill There's a slip of blood on the silver knife There's a graveyard kid down below Where at night the dead come to life And above the stars they crackle and fire A dead man's moon throws seven rings Well, we'd put our ears to the cold gravestones This is the song they'd sing We are alive And though our bodies lie alone here in the dark Our spirits rise to carry the fire And light the spark To stand shoulder to shoulder and hide This is kind of an ode to um, the fallen soldiers in this fight, right? Um, you know, he references you know the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, um, which I mean, you guys know the history of that, and he references Birmingham '63, right? The yeah, race riots, right? bombing, right? Um, you know, it's it's only a riot from the perspective of the you know the law enforcement air quotes. Um, you know the the railroad strike like 100 people died in that you know it was over you know they railroad companies were cutting wages they had cut wages like three times or something right so it wasn't you know it's funny how we get propagandized to call it a riot or whatever right you know it you know it was legitimate right these people you know burned train cars and buildings and engines and you know um for months you know across multiple states right so you know He's referencing, you know, fallen soldiers in this fight again on this different battle, this different uh, frontline battle against, you know, capitalists, you know, or white supremacists, right, which is built into capitalism in the U.S., right? We know that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just great. And I think it's like placed perfectly, you know, it's one of those songs, you know, it's kind of the way, what's the last, what are the last two songs on the rising? My city, you know, Paradise is there. Um, what's the last song on the rising, Lee? My City of Ruins is the last song, isn't it? Uh, I think there's one after that, but it's like it's you know the sequencing of a record is is it's so important, right? So it ends on that high note, which is Land of Hope and Dreams, which, like I said, was glorious, right? But then this is this is almost an, ep, an ep, epilogue, an epitaph, I must say, which is true to again this fallen soldiers in this fight. So I think it's a good bookend to we take care of our own and we remember our own. I do. I like the way that, you know, that he does give voice. It's like, you know, to, you know, people who, you know, it's like who were gone, who are long gone. And it's uh, in the in the circumstances of which, you know, which they, you know, were taken out of this world. So, you know, it's like that it's, you know, that it really is like a kind of a point. It's very poignant in that respect, you know, that it's, uh, 
basically kind of give, gives voice to people who you know who have not been given a voice. Yeah, song about ghosts, right? The spirit of ancestors regenerating for each generation, kind of thing, right? I like how he's he's giving uh, like these are friendly ghosts, right? These are nice spirits, right? Like ghosts don't have to be scary, right? These are nice ghosts, right? These exactly. are the, the spirits that are rising to support, right? They're standing shoulder to shoulder with the new generations that are coming their in their place, kind of thing, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Gospel feel with the lyrics again, religious imagery, right? The first line, there's a cross up yonder on a hill. And like you said, Eric, mentioning all those those crimes and those spirits that are being killed previously. Who have been victims of kind of, of you know, kind of, of tyranny. And, For sure, you know, yeah. people, you know, people who were, you know, had power over them. Right, here mm-hmm. to support people in this day that might be going through similar situations kind of thing, right? Yeah, you know, it's like it's just like you know, hey, it's like you know, we're, you're you are you are not forgotten. It's like you know that uh, you know we know you know it's like we we know we know what happened. And it's also like I was saying, it gives historical context. Like, you know, you're not you're not alone in this fight now, and this fight is not alone in the continuum of struggles, right? Right. And I guess we have to mention the Ring of Fire melody, Johnny Cash, right? It's got that do 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 that it's obviously Ring of Fire. Quoting that, there's no way he didn't know what he was doing when he wrote that melody, kind of thing, right? But I like it. I like it. I like the melody. It's got like a mariachi trumpet played by uh, Daryl Leonard. It's kind of got like that cowboy western vibe. There's a banjo on there, a mandocello. I, th- I kind of think of uh, the closing credits of like an epic western movie, spaghetti western or something like that, right? And you see the guys on the horseback riding out to the sunset, right? Do 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 with the spirits around them and everything, right? <laughs> That's very uh-huh. cool. Very cool, right? And after the long instrumental outro, we get it fades and we just get this little acoustic guitar and Springsteen doing the little whistle and it kind of fades there, right? I, I love that. Because maybe that whistle, that whistle could be a ghost or <laughs> one of the spirits, right? So yeah, I really dig this song and uh, one of my favorites. It was always good live. Uh, Max plays drums on this. Some good brushes on that snare, right? Brushes on that snare. <laughs> and uh, Max has said that the original version of this was like a punk song in the style of the Ramones. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, right? So, uh, fingers crossed, maybe we'll get that on tracks too, right? The punk Ramones style of We Are Alive. Let's hope for that. (laughs) All right, so that's technically the end of the record, but now we're going to get into these bonus tracks. Now, bonus tracks, eh? Like, just in general, like, don't you think bonus tracks are kind of whack? Like, like I, I wish, I have this clip somewhere of Tom Petty, if I can find it, it could be on a VHS, like way up in my in my box, is packed away. If, if I can find this clip, there's a clip of Tom Petty talking about this very thing, and he's talking about like doing greatest hits, and then they ask you for the record company asks you for like, can you just put one bonus song on the greatest hits or a live song or something like that? And Tom Petty's like, he's like, what's the deal, man? Like, there's there's no bonus. Like, it either, it's either on your album or it's not on your album. Like, I don't want anything on there that's not supposed to be there. Like, come on, man. Like, what is this bonus track shit, right? <laughs> The old label was going to release a Greatest Hits album, which I wasn't really keen on, but it was a contractual obligation. And part of this obligation was that I had to deliver a new song to go along with this album. And 
it irked me no end that I had to do this, you know, because I, I was trying to write for wildflowers. I didn't want to turn around and give something away. And I kind of hate it when you get those greatest hits albums and there's, there's all hits and then, what's that, you know, at the end? There's like, well, what's that on there for, you know? It's, I hate that. Why is there a live track all of a sudden? Like, I don't get it. But... The bonus that they're giving their the, offering. There is no bonus track. It's the end of your record, man. There is no bonus. You know, I don't buy that. I don't want it on my record unless it's supposed to be there. But this is why people find me difficult sometimes. But it makes perfect sense. So anyway, here we go. We got bonus tracks here. We got a couple of bonus tracks here that were on this deluxe CD version that I got. They weren't on the LP version. So the first bonus track that we have here is uh, called Swallowed Up in the belly of the whale. Nothing but the cloak of God's mercy over me. I come upon strangers and a great black cave. I dreamt I awoke as if buried in. So another gospel tinge to this. I did some research on this story because, uh, you know, like I said, I'm not really up to date on my biblical readings. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm an atheist, but I don't really, I don't practice any kind of religion at all. But I do love some of the stories in the Bible. I think it's a well-written book. And some of the stories, the way they tell them, I think is really, is, is really kind of cool. And this story is about the prophet Jonah who disobeyed God. And then he kind of fled in a boat. And while he's on this boat, there's this storm, a crazy storm on, on the ocean, right? And everybody on the boat thinks the storm is because this guy disobeyed God. So everybody on the boat throws this guy overboard, right? And then he's swallowed by this whale, right? And then three days later, he gets puked up, right? He's going he's gonna to puke, right? And he's <laughs> he's going to puke. He's, he's going to puke. puke. Yeah, so this whale pukes up Jonah, and he's reborn, 
he's reborn. He's got this whole new lease on life, right? So I think this song is kind of, you know, Springsteen has said, like, once you're Catholic, it never leaves you kind of thing. Like, you're in for life kind of thing. So he has all these kind of stories. And I think this is kind of something that's kind of based on this, like being swallowed up in the belly of the beast, right? Great production on this, evoking the sounds of the sea from inside the belly of a whale. Right, atmospheric. Man, it's a creative song. Like, it's definitely a bonus track. Like, if it was on the album, it's not one of the, the better ones, but it's cool, it's creative. You know, it's cool that here's this guy towards the end of his career and he's still coming up with new ideas, new new creativities. You know, I like the middle section, the descending, uh, like there's a la-da-da-da-da, la-da-da-da-da, kind of descending line. I thought that was kind of cool. I did not expect that we would be doing a Vince McMahon. He's going to puke. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where that came from. He's going <laughs> to <Yeah>, puke. <laughs> My friends and I do that all the time. He's going to puke. I'm going to take his. Try not to get it on the rest of my table here. I won't huh? Can you do that? Huh? You going to get sick? That's a possibility. Huh? Oh. <laughs> huh? Oh my God. He, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to, he's coming at you. He's going to puke. He's going to puke. He's going to puke. He's going to puke. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot about this. The one thing I thought was curious was like he's, He's experimenting with sounds, right? It reminded me of like Tom Waits mule variations where Tom Waits would use all these really cool like audio textures, uh, for lack of a better term, right? I think it's pretty much a direct telling of that story that you were saying. I don't know if puke is in the Bible. You know, I'd like to use that. You know, they might have said, you know, and the whale doth hurled him up after three days or something. Uh, Yeah, I don't have a whole lot on this one. I'm going to be honest. You know, it's not my favorite. I listened to it a few times. I wasn't familiar with it until we started doing research for this. Not particularly memorable for me, to be honest. And I'm, you know, to your point about Tom Petty, you know, I think they record songs like this. You know, Bruce is pretty particular about his sequencing and what makes a record and doesn't, right? I, I oh, think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And this, this wouldn't have fit on here. No. In any way. I don't think. Maybe it was part of that gospel project still, right? There seems to be a lot of four or five leftovers from mm-hmm. that on this Just possibly yeah, with that obviously, connection. Obviously, it's like, yeah, the lyric has definitely has a, you know, has a very strong kind of, you know, biblical kind of bent to it, you know, and obviously it's like, you know, talking about, you know, Jonah and the whale, it's like, you know, that's, you know, it's like that is, you know, straight up, you know, religious references. It was it three days? That's the same as Jesus, like from Good Friday. Good yeah, Friday. Yeah, yeah. And why do they call it Good Friday? That was the day he was killed. That would be like the worst Friday. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. It is really kind of, it definitely invokes a lot of irony. Right. There's probably a reason to that. Lee, look at, can you look into that, Lee? Yeah, I'll get you, I'll get back to you on the next episode with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And the second of two bonus tracks is American Land.
not again probably not one of my favorite tracks on this but it's like i like the way it's like you know the imagery of uh of immigrants coming to this country on it you know it's like and that uh you know really it's like how it is like you know people it's like you know escaping you know their you know look basically just looking for looking for a better a better life you know in, in a new land you know, it's like that's the you know that that the theme of that song is like that kind of appeals to me but otherwise it's like you know again it's like it's not uh you know a song that's like that really kind of speaks to me in any other way yeah that's uh, that's fair what jeff said you know i think this song this song probably could fit on the record you know this one's of the same theme i think i think the beats are fantastic in this song again with this high energy violin melody party fight song party slash fight fight slash party song right yeah yeah um this is you know like like jeff said you know he's talking about the the european immigrant experience right you know it's the ellis island immigrant experience right idealized where he's talking about you know the the gold flow the gold flows right into your hands there's there's treasure for the taking for any working man it's you know it's this dream this bill of goods that they probably were sold on the other side of the ocean where like you go there and there's you know you know free gold just falls into your hands it's amazing right um which again it kind of goes back to the we take care of our own born in the usa like contrasty thing right so he's he's selling that but then he's also got lyrics in here you know the hands that built this country were always trying to keep out right so you know, as much as we might celebrate our heritage, you know, again, from the European immigration perspective in this song, right? We're also trying to keep them out. We just had a fucking guy, you know, had millions of people chanting, build that wall, right? Um, it's that same contradiction, you know, where two things can be true at once, right? We can honor that and respect, you know, again, let's talk about the Sopranos, right? You know, Tony often talks about the Italians that built these churches in New Jersey and whatever. It's just such great pride, right? Um, yet they're like these murderous criminals that, you know, exploit the American dream, right? So you can, these two things can be true at once, right? This is contrast or contradiction, um, the dream and the exploitation, right? So, you know, it's kind of left to the audience, the listener. Like, what do you feel when you hear this, right? Mm-hmm. Hopefully both, right? I think it's probably the goal. Yeah, and I think this fits in the record. I would, I actually would have liked this in the record somewhere. Maybe, maybe I would displace the, the, the getting it on song uh, with this one. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah, like you said, he mentions the blacks, the Irish, Italians, Germans, and Jews. He also mentions a bunch of families. And interesting, he mentions the uh, the Zerillis, which is actually his mother's maiden name. Oh, I, yeah, I I meant to look up that. Do, are each of those names that he referenced they? They must have a personal connection. I, I know about right? the Zerillis. The other ones are uh, Michalassus, the Pasalians, the Smiths, Zerillis too. Mm-hmm. Fuck, I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Because he mentions like the Germans, the Pole, you know, there's probably one of each of those within that list, right? Maybe, like, yeah. It's probably an Italian name. That'd be deep. We'll do some research. Yeah. The song was originally written and recorded during the Seeger sessions in 2006, and it was played live with the, with the sessions band. So it was, I think it was like the encore song every night. So uh, often featured in live E Street band shows as well. Really cool when the when the band would do this. Great last song encore song with with all the lights up, everybody dancing and singing. Right, and he decided to redo it 
for Wrecking Ball, a new version. Once again, I probably like the Sessions Band original live version better than this re-record. Are the lyrics the same? Like, lyrics are the same. Yeah, it's the same song, just different band, and he's recording even, in the studio here. Even that one line that I broke out, the hands that built this country were always trying to keep out. Like that's in the, when he was singing it in a secret session era, that line is in there? Yep. Same song. That's yep. Awesome. Pretty sure you yeah. have. Uh, similar style to that Seeger Sessions version, but with a harder rock edge, right? We got Max is on drums, great drums on this. Uh, Steven Van Zandt is on mandolin and background vocals. Immigrants coming to America for the big dream, only to realize it's not what it seems. This guy leaves his wife at home and he'll send for her when he can, right? Like there's a, he says there's treasure in the taking for any hardworking man who's going to make his home in the American land, right? That's the dream kind of thing, right? Shouting out to all the American immigrants that built the country and the same ones that you said, Eric, are, America is still trying to keep out kind of thing, right? Nice little guitar end too. The song ends with a nice little guitar, like just guitar only. And it sounds like a little feedback, like he's unplugging his guitar or something at the end. And that's how the record ends. The two bonus tracks. That's always, that's always a cool way to end a song, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Just that sort of sloppy, like, yeah, this <laughs> unplug kind of thing. Unplugging and going home. Okay. So there you go. That's the record. That's Wrecking Ball. 11 official tracks and two bonus tracks, uh, making it 13 total. So let's go around. Let's pick our least favorite and our favorite. I'll go first. My least favorite has got to be You've Got It. That's sort of an optimistic love song that seems way out of place on this record. Uh, good songwriting, but I would have liked it. I, I probably could have done something with it with an, a different arrangement. Like I said, a faster rock and roll thing. But just kind of this adult contemporary dentist music is... Uh, is uh, probably my least favorite on this record. But you, Eric, least favorite. I would least favorite. One hundred percent, exactly what you just said. All right. Ditto. What about you, Jeff? Your least favorite wrecking ball track. Yeah, that, that's definitely like my least favorite track, and I'd probably say my favorite is is still as like we take care of our own. All right, take care of our own. Jeff's favorite. Eric, what's your favorite track on this record? Boy, this is a tough one. Um, they're all so fucking good. Like Land of Hope and Dreams. Is really something that Clarence solo and the context of it is really something that story you just gave. It's hard to top that, right? But we take care of our own is incredible. Death to my hometown is incredible. Uh, I'm going to go land of hope and dreams. All right. Good call. That's a great song. Like I love land of hope and dreams, but I'm, I'm partial to the original, the live in New York city, 2000 version above this one. And like I said earlier, my original Favorite song on this record for the longest time has been Jack of All Trades. But after going through this record a few times over the last few days, We Are Alive is my favorite song, I think. I think I just love that song. Yeah, like the first time I heard it, I was a little offended by that Ring of Fire ripoff. I'm like, ah, come on, man. He's just stealing that lick. But now I get it. I get it, what he's saying, doing with that lick. And I get the vibe. And I love this the sentiment of the, the, the friendly ghosts supporting us and standing side by side. So I'm going to go with We Are Alive as my uh, favorite track off this record. So when he does that Ring of Fire lick, you're, you say he definitely knows that. So why, like he's using it, so then he's choosing to use it. And yeah. what does that add to the message for you? He's evoking the spirit of Johnny Cash. He's evoking the the, the morals, the integrity of Johnny Cash when you, when, you, when you put something like that in a song, you know, I think. Johnny, I want to send out a big thanks for the inspiration, man. You kind of took the uh, social consciousness from folk music and the, the gravity and humor from country music and the rebellion out of the rock and roll and uh, 
and taught all us young guys that not only was it all right to, to tear up all those lines and boundaries, but it was important. All right, final thoughts on the record, uh, Eric. Yeah, like I said at the top, this is probably my second favorite Bruce record, second or third, right? It's it's really up there. I think it's solid. You know, this is this is where I stand uh, politically, right? This is I work on this stuff all the time, right? I it speaks to me on so many levels. I just love this record, and it's got, you know, it's got a lot of Bruceisms. I like everything you guys said, right? Like he's mixing these styles and he's mixing them well, you know, in in. You know, these colors work well on, on his palette, probably better than anybody's, you know. So this, you know, The Rising will always be my favorite Bruce record. That's where I got serious about being a fan, right? Um, this this one's, you know, a close second or third, like I said. Definitely a wrecking ball. I think, you know, I agree with Eric. It's like that I think that this is probably of this era of his, you know, of his work. It's like I think that it's probably, probably the second best record. It's like he's done next to The Rising. You know, it's like that it really... I appreciate it's like, you know, his, you know, willingness to take chances and experiment musically and uh, and both, you know, kind of combine, you know, the, you know, kind of his past influences and, you know, and drawing in new ones, you know, it's like, and, you know, making them a kind of a seamless whole with his own kind of trademark sound is really pretty brilliant. It's like, and it's the fact that, you know, here's somebody it's like, you know, that has been making records for like almost five decades and yet he is still a vital creative force. You know, so that's the thing it's like that I always have really respected and, and admired greatly about Bruce Springsteen. And that's what made me a fan. I'll be honest with you. It's like, you know, when I first heard Bruce Springsteen as kind of a as a preteen, it's like, you know, I kind of like, you know, I didn't understand what his appeal was. But uh as you know as i got older it's like you know i was like this guy is great i get it you know it's like i i finally get what you know i finally get what he's about you know my my admiration for his work you know continues to grow even now and for him to be you know for him to be on the right side of this equation like he could very easily just count his money and be a multi hundred millionaire whatever he is right but right. he's you know again he's embodying you know these these income inequality fight songs, right? There's sincerity there. And that's, yeah, that's what a true artist, that's what an empathetic person does. Right. And I think to be an artist, you have to be empathetic right first. So. Exactly. He yeah, really does embody the kind of Woody Guthrie ethic of, uh, you know, writing songs for the people, you know, by the people for the people kind of thing with your songwriting. And the fact that he's so creative with his art is just, you know, it's, it's really amazing. I like this record, you know, going into this, this is probably in the bottom half, maybe bottom quarter of my favorite Springsteen records. But, uh, you know, after doing some more listening and delving into the songs more, I, I it's probably moved up a few notches. You know, I still yeah. like the rising and magic better, but, uh, yeah. you know, maybe I like this a little bit more than working on a dream or something like that, you know? But <laughs> Cool. It's a solid record, though. Like, it, you know, there's, there's not one Springsteen record I don't like. Like I said, the songwriting is always the core, and it's always stellar. It's just some of the production choices and the arrangement stuff. I, you know, that's the stuff that kind of turns me on and off. Yeah, I will say one negative thing about Bruce, if I may, not to end it on a, a down note, but you know, still all these years later, man, he's still fucking left Wayne handcuffed to that car, right? <laughs> Yeah, he needs but to revisit that. Get, like, what's going on with those guys, man? Right? Can't go back and get Wayne? What the hell, man, Bruce? 
Yeah, we need to know, Bruce, what happened to Wayne? What happened to Wayne? <laughs> right. All right, thank you, fellows. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for spending some time with us going through this record, Wreck- Wrecking Ball. Thank you, man. I always enjoy conversation with you guys on air, off the air, you know, especially going through a record like this that I love. It's been too long since I talked to Jeff. It's always a pleasure, my friend. I appreciate you. Thank you. It's, like, it's uh, a pleasure. It's like to get to spend some time with you guys, too. It's like, and I always, you know, whether whether we're talking about, you know, an album or, you know, just, you know, just, you know, just talking in general. It's like, this is, this is always a pleasure. Thank you. Good times. Yeah. Music brings it all together, right? Jeff kills it on Behind the Grooves, man. Yeah. He's like, it's like still trying to, you know, it's like still trying to make that uh, do what it does. And, you know, actually probably it's like after I log off here, it's like, you know, I'd probably do some more writing today. So good stuff. Good stuff, man. Where can What's people the, find that, Jeff? Like, Where can people like find your blogs or? Anybody is like that is uh, interested in doing so. It's like you know that uh, behind the grooves is on Patreon. It's uh, www.patreon.com forward slash behind the grooves, and of course you can sponsor me for as little as five bucks a month or more. It's like if you feel moved to do so. You know, just being humble. Let me chime in. Um, let me put him over for a second. This guy writes like this day in music history, but that doesn't even do it justice. Like he writes like. Fucking War and Peace on like the third single from Bananarama's second record or whatever, right? Like every day he writes all these details, you know, and if you're a music nerd, if you like trivia, you know, this dude, there's a second to none. So, you know, go Thank follow you. him, go subscribe. That's very kind of you. Thank you. It's like, it's just like I said, it's like, this is, you're basically, it's like, you know, getting what's, you know, what's, what's living in my head and it's like in my own kind of like a <laughs> musical, musical, musical nerddom. It's like, you know, kind of, you know, being, you know, like, opened up and, and spilled out you know it's like that, that's that's just you know just an honest expression of it's like of what uh what music does for me it's like and how i feel it yeah and it, all kinds of styles right if you're just a music fan i can't recommend it enough go follow jeff harris behind the groups thank you that, that's that's very kind and very generous of you to, to say that and accurate check it out all right, thank you, Easy Eric Money and uh, Jeff of All Trades. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very hard times in the U.S. Very hard times over here all over Europe also. This is Jack of All Trades. I'll mow your lawn Clean the leaves out your drain I'll mend your roof To keep out the rain I'll take the work Let God provide I'm a jack of all trees On it will be alright I'll hammer the nails I'll set the stone I'll harvest your crops When they're ripe and grown I'll pull that Catch her up till she's running right. I'm a jack of all trees. I 
like the world's gonna change We'll start caring for each other Like Jesus said that we might I'm a jack of all trades Maybe we'll be alright mention the wrecking ball tour this world tour commenced march 18th 2012 in atlanta georgia not including that record release show at the apollo in harlem a few weeks earlier and concluded on september 21st 2013 in rio de janeiro brazil i think that was the rock and rio show i have a cool video bootleg of that performance world tour 133 shows total you know quite a big tour stadiums and arenas all over the world i saw the toronto show it was at skydome august 24th 2012 I had a pit ticket, and I was able to get about three people deep at the front of the stage. So that was so fun. So out of a stadium of like 60,000 people, I was like three deep right at the front of the stage for the entire night. It was an amazing show. It was a perfect summer day and fun night. 
and the closest I've been at a Springsteen concert. I had so much fun, I had to go again. You know, he played Hamilton Cops Coliseum a few months later, and I bought a ticket for uh, like one seat behind the stage. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So this tour, that show he was doing, it was one of the longest shows he'd done in recent years, especially with the E Street Band. You know, shows easily going past the three-hour mark. In Helsinki, Finland, July 31st, 2012, Bruce hit four hours for the first time. He since surpassed it, but up to that point, this was the longest show he'd ever played, clocking in at four hours, six minutes. The, the myth of the four-hour Springsteen show, right? But he actually did it <laughs> for this gig in Helsinki, Finland. Right, I have an audio bootleg of that show. It's a great moment in Springsteen E Street Band history. Somebody just told me we're two minutes away from four hours.
So I found this interview with John Cooper. John Cooper is the front of house sound engineer, and he's the guy that records all the live shows, right? Springsteen has been recording and releasing through his website and Nugs every show for like the last decade. John goes into detail about his process, how he records the band, getting those sounds to tape kind of thing, you know. Now, I'll warn you, this is very tech-heavy, but I dig it. You know, I find this stuff fascinating, the -the behind-the-scenes production stuff. So this segment is for the gearheads. Let's hear from John. Hi, I'm John Cooper, and I have the privilege of mixing uh, Bruce Springsteen's Wrecking Ball Tour. Uh, We are in Anaheim, California today, and we're currently closing in on, I think, around 80 shows, and uh, uh, looking forward to another uh, pretty busy year coming up in 2013. This show is full. Um, this, the Avid platform allows for 96 inputs of their pre's. I have an additional eight preamps for audience mics, so I've got a total of 104 preamps employed. And there's a, there's, I think there's two that are being used as talkback channels, but the rest are actual inputs. Um, and again, eight of those are audience mics. We have four at the stage position and four out here at the front of house position. I've got the entire plug-in rack, all 100 slots loaded, and I'd say about 90 of those slots are with Waves devices. We record every single show out here. We do two full multi-track captures out here. Um, Everything that we do in this world is redundant. There's two of everything. There's two full sets of Waves plug-ins. There's two front of house engines. There's two Pro Tools rigs. There's nothing we don't have a backup system for and most backups we have backups for. This show could go off the air, it's certainly possible, but it would take so many things failing simultaneously to make that happen, it would be against all odds. Not saying it can't happen, but it would be unlikely, you know, because we've got redundancy in the drive system as far as AES and analog signals being fed both directions, bi-directionally, so there's redundancy built into both of those. Um, again, I have an A engine that's mirrored to a B engine, which this manufacturer particularly doesn't build in, but we've built it in through some creative thinking. And I also have a mix coming from a monitor console and a vocal coming from a monitor console as an ultimate third backup if we got into real trouble out here. My mix goes everywhere. Tonight, for example, my record bus will feed to the press for the first three songs, a couple beta machines in back. Also in the Pro Tools environment, um, both Pro Tools systems get tracked with the two-track mix as the last set of tracks on the mix, so they've got scratch mixes to listen to when they go into the studio. My record bus has got a C6 on it, and it's set up completely different than the C6 driving the mains. This one basically just contains the dynamics just a little bit to allow for the recording to sound real and really live and, and to breathe and, and, and to have all those great things that are, you know, that, that you want from a live performance. And the audience mics uh, in conjunction with that, which are bust essentially straight through with no processing at all, allow uh, for the real sense of live. Um, if there's anything I've learned in, in the last 10 years, it's you know, board tapes that don't have equal amounts of audience versus band are not very well received. They, you know, they want them to feel as live and loose as, as they possibly can to the, to the point of, you know, there's always a fine line of how much audience mic you can use before you wash out a mix. 
On this tour, vocal's incredibly important. He's telling a lot of stories here. I've run the gauntlet of every microphone on the planet, and I'm using the same microphone I used in 1978, and that's an SM58. You know, anybody can buy one for $100, you know? This is not... <laughs> there's no... There's no uh, there's there's no uh, brain surgery going on here as far as microphones goes. This is this is a basic drive a nail with it or sing into it. You know, it goes through the Avid preamp in the in the Avid rack, and then um, I process that with the Renaissance uh, EQ six, I think it is, and then we go to the C six for dynamic uh, equalization and compression, and then overall dynamics management of that channel is done with max volume. Uh, tip of the engineer's hat to my dear friend Pooch for just saying, Cooper, you need to be using max volume. And uh, the next day I was, and uh, from one friend to another, he really uh, pointed me in the right direction with this. The primary vocal is bussed through the L1 limiter just to kind of level it out, and that feeds to the PA matrix proper. Also, I do a little sub-mixing in the Matrix because the guitars are so loud coming off the stage in this show. They're into all the microphones. So I have the guitars actually dimmed down a little bit in the sub-mix going to the PA Matrix to where I don't have them dimmed down going into the recording Matrix. Like I say, in between the input handle and the output matrix, there's the L1 uh, uh, compressor in there, just kind of taking off a little bit of the top, just kind of leveling it out, uh, managing things that might cause the output bus to clip an extreme, uh, extreme vocal input, or the microphone getting swung at a wedge, or getting swung at someone in the, in the audience. I mean, oftentimes vocal might get swung like this in a sweeping fashion at the audience, and if there's girls screaming, you just never know what the level's going to be. And oftentimes, that happens so fast from a vocal part to, you know, singing, not. Singing, not. And I am constantly managing the dynamics of, of that main vocal. The kick drum, for example, I use the SSL 4000 module. And then, in addition to that, I use the Renaissance bass module to add a little more low-frequency fundamental to the kick drum. Um, very successful chain. It, frankly, has not been touched in about 75 shows. Snare top, I have a very ridiculous-looking uh, C6 patch set up for it, and uh, it works amazingly well. <laughs> That's all I can say. It looks crazy, but it works. And then I use max volume on the uh, uh, snare top mic as well, which uh, um, just, again, gives me a little more containment of the overall dynamics. I, I went through eight, ten different devices in the Waves line and ended up with the Renaissance Axe on the cymbal mics. You know, I I'm not one to get caught up and say, well, this is for guitar. No, this is just a compressor that might have some algorithms that are tailored for guitar, but it might work someplace else. So, you know, I would encourage anyone to, to try things in unusual locations. You'll, you'll, you'll be really surprised as to how well they can work. We mic the overheads underneath about four inches from the cymbals. So there's a lot of SPL hitting those mics. Uh, max volume's been a huge asset for me. I use that on the toms. We have a situation where there's some songs where he's playing with brushes. Uh, there's some songs that 
he actually mutes the head with a towel and things like that. So one song he's playing very softly and the next one it's just thunderous pounding that you have to control as well. Being able to, to gate this stuff is just not it within real reality. You know, so I might be able to close it down a couple of dB with, with the gating function and max volume, but that's a very subtle gate that opens and closes very smoothly so you don't hear it. A hi-hat gets a renaissance axe, of course. Um, anything that's got brass in it gets a renaissance axe, and I can't tell you exactly what's going on with the renaissance axe, but once you start crushing an input with it, that input just comes to life. It's discoverable in the mix at that point. Main acoustic guitar, um, compressor of choice is always a, an LA-2A or a CLA-2A. It's a real warm compressor and, and works nicely with the dynamics produced by an acoustic instrument. Generally in front of that is the VEQ-4 uh, in this case. That's generally my acoustic uh, chain. All these dynamics devices, particularly the vintage ones, the modeling, uh, it's interesting, it's so accurate that it's just like the problem I used to be faced with in the old days where if I employed 10, 11, 76s there was too much hiss and noise because that was just the way those devices work. You can get away with one or two of them, but you can't get away with 10 or 12 of them in a mix. And interestingly enough, the modeling's so accurate with the wave stuff that if you're gonna run 10 LA2s or CLA2s, you're going to have to put them, take them out of analog mode because they're going to tell on you, you know, but, they, that, but they're doing what they're supposed to do. That's exactly what those devices used to do. So that's, that's the main reason that I'm a big proponent of, of the Waves line. It's just, they've just been very accurate on the model. B3 low is a CLA 2A, very straightforward there. B3 high, Renaissance Axe uh, on the top rotors in stereo and that Leslie sits in an ISO box, so it's a pretty clean source, so that's very nice. Accordions, well, of course, we use the max volume on the accordions because what stadium rock show would be complete without four accordions? The dynamic range of an accordion is startlingly wide, and this is a great device to bring some of the lower register stuff up and contain some of the higher uh, uh, SPL information that this tends to occur when you're trying to localize or locally mic a, uh, a device like an accordion. Of course, our accordion is mic with two mics and it's also wireless, so he could be in front of any number of things um, while he's trying to play. So it's a great asset. Um, we move on to piano. Well, gosh, there's another Renaissance axe at work. and. Uh, and as you can see, it's pretty well murdering that piano right now at about 90 dB gain reduction, and it sounds fantastic. We haven't had a review yet this year that's mentioned sound. So that's where you want to be. You want to be in the background so the artist's music gets delivered to the artist's public, and they don't talk about audio and speaker systems and sound. They say, man, that was a great show. That's what all this work is all about. Electric guitars, well, of course, we're back to Renaissance Axe again and uh, that's the same for all my electric guitars. We can move to the horn section then, and you know, there, there's uh, a lot of uh, Renaissance channel at work here because I wanted to have the ability to do a little bit of downward expansion and a little bit of compression at the same time, plus I was running out of uh, plug-in slots. So that's how we ended up there. All the horns are processed in a similar manner 
Um, it just slightly different EQs, uh, some with not much EQ at all. There might be a little EQ on the input side, but not on the plug-in side. The, the H delay looks so reminiscent of my uh, uh, tape echoes that I used when I was a much younger man. Um, that's why I like them, you know, and that's the request I get oftentimes from the stage on this tour is, put some slap on it. Well, he doesn't want anything, it doesn't, it, it needs to sound like tape slap, and that sounds like tape slap. I mean, most people look at me sometimes and say, you got your eyes closed. And I said, yeah, my eyes lie to my ears. I, I don't let my ears be fooled by what they, what my eyes see. In fact, I'll oftentimes, if we're making a decision on a, a particular thing with, with low end in a room, I said, okay, I'm gonna close my eyes. You bump it back and forth 20 times fast, so I don't know where it is. Now, push it slowly and let me decide which one I like better. And then I said, okay, okay, that's the one I like. And then he'll tell me where it's at. My main focus when I'm mixing is to forget about all the electronics and be involved to submerse myself into the music. If I'm thinking about EQ during the show, then I haven't done something during the day that I should have done. I mean, I want to be sitting here grinning from ear to ear like like the people on stage are and enjoying it that much. That's the whole reason I got into this. And, and, I, and, I, and I know that if I feel that good about it, that it usually translates pretty well to you know, the majority of the audience. You know, because I know my guys that are putting the system in the room every day are doing a great job of making sure this, the sound system responds uniformly throughout the environment that we're working in. I, I get to be intimately involved in the music, which is really my goal. That's the great thing about the tools with, with Waves and, and, and automated consoles and things we get to do now. People would contend that you have been taken out of the mixing because of all the electronics and all the tools, and I contend it's just the opposite. You don't spend the last 30 seconds of a given song thinking about the first 30 seconds of the next song. You can do that with the push of a switch as far as statusing of a particular song, fader levels and that sort of thing. So it's, uh, it really allows you to get back to mixing the music.
right, hope you dug that. Hope you enjoyed our album review and look back at Wrecking Ball, the album, the tour, coming up on its 10th anniversary. Right? Thanks to Eric Miller and Jeff Harris for joining me, and thanks to you for listening. We'll talk with you next time. So, that's the show, folks. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website at TrampsLikeUsPod.com. Communicate with us on Facebook at our Tramps Like Us podcast group page. Tramps Like Us podcast is a nonprofit audio fanzine created by fans for fans and is available for free. We are not affiliated with Bruce Springsteen or Columbia Sony Records. If you've heard any music you like, please find it and purchase it from BruceSpringsteen.net, Amazon, your local record store, or wherever music is sold. As always, gratitude and respect to Bruce Springsteen and all past and current members of the heart-stopping, pants-dropping, hard-rocking, booty-shaking, earthquaking, love-making, viagra-taking, history-making, testifying, death-defying, legendary E Street Band.